Hey, it's Julie. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind, this season focused on finding fairness. We are hard at work at this very moment on season four, which you'll hear starting in August. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for a sneak peek of that. In the meantime, though, we'd love to hear your thoughts on season three. Is there a specific episode that challenged your idea of what's fair? Was there a perspective you found particularly challenging to hear? And what happened when you kept listening, even when you were inclined to stop? Our email is topofmind at byu.edu. I hope you'll reach out. As a final bonus to end the season, we have got something special for you. The goal of Top of Mind, as you know, is to help us become better citizens, kinder neighbors, and more effective advocates. But we're not a how-to podcast with checklists and action items. Instead, we probe for more clarity and more empathy on the topic, and then we let you decide where to take that next. But our guests often do give us practical advice that's pretty great. So we decided to put all of those moments together for you from the season into this one episode. On the how to be a better citizen front, it doesn't get more direct than concerned mom turned environmental activist Katie Bryant's advice. Katie is co-founder of the grassroots North Carolina advocacy group Clean Haw River. We featured her in episode four with the title, Who's Responsible for Combating Pollution? I would say getting involved in your community and showing up, even if you just put like one or two, you know, town hall meetings on your agenda for the year, just going and listening to what's happening because you will be surprised what goes on behind the scenes and gets brushed under the rug that you might have knowledge on or maybe some interest in. You might be that puzzle piece to the whole problem that your town may not be equipped at dealing with. That's what I wish everybody could do is to, you know, put a little bit of good back into their communities. In that same episode, episode four, we spoke with another citizen activist named Teresa Landrum, and she described a community meeting in her Detroit neighborhood in the early 2000s as a turning point. We were at St. Andrew and Benedict's church and they allowed us to have our monthly meetings in the basement. And we had a young lady by the name of Rhonda Anderson from the Sierra Club. And she came to us and asked us, did you ever think that your health problems and the health challenges you guys have faced and are going to face is coming from the air that you breathe and the industries that emit pollution and dangerous chemicals into the air. I I was taken aback. And the suspicions that I had were now being uh, made concrete in my mind. We didn't know that we could object to that pollution being showered down on us. And she taught us how to organize. She taught us how to watch the air to see if it was black, brown, or orange that day. She taught us to take pictures of how many trucks came through our neighborhood from the industries to and fro. So she was really one of the pivotal changes that happened because she taught us to have a voice, how to go down to city council and object to our city council, giving industry and businesses the right to open up right across from our homes. We didn't know we could do that. We did not have any idea that we could actually become powerful. 
In episode seven of the latest season of Top of Mind, we explored the problem of bystanders and why it is that some people step in to help or blow the whistle on bad behavior while others don't. Being an engaged citizen often requires rocking the boat a bit, or at the very least, going against social norms. So in that episode, author Elizabeth Svoboda talked about an assignment that a famous Stanford scientist used to give his students to train them to take action when nobody else does. I love this one. I think that he called it be a deviant for a day. And basically he would tell his psychology students to do something that would make them stand out in public in an unmistakable way. So, for example, maybe you wear a giant diaper, pretend to be a six-foot-tall baby, or you wear a giant mustache, or you wear a giant inner tube around your waist to every single class. It, it almost doesn't matter what you choose. The, the important thing, I think, was he wanted them to get comfortable with being uncomfortable in public, with going against the norm. That Comfort with being uncomfortable, I think, is what underlies so many decisions to behave heroically. Almost by definition, not a lot of people behave heroically because it's hard, because it goes against the grain. So anything you can do in that moment to sort of try on the uncomfortable feeling and and get used to the uncomfortable feeling may be really important preparation for you down the line. In another episode this season, episode eight, we heard about a school district in Gilbert, Iowa, using this very idea of practicing doing uncomfortable things to train teenagers to help their peers who are in mental health crisis. Jen Schnormeyer is one of the staff instructors for the district. The teen mental health first aid training coaches kids to recognize when their friends are struggling and to know what to listen for and how to seek help. We asked Jen Schnormeyer if the program has made kids reluctant to express how they're truly feeling for fear of getting reported. But she said, and I really loved how she phrased this, that in their schools, they and the students have decided that, quote, the culture of caring supersedes the culture of spying. So recently, I got a text from a parent um, kind of later at night, and it said, hey, uh, my student is worried about student B, and um, can you reach out to the mom and make sure everything's okay? And I said, absolutely. Um, The student had posted some things on some social media that were concerning, and I reached out to the mom, texted her, and we were able to connect. But also, other students had reached out to the mom and had asked her to go check on the student as well. And For me, that was a huge payoff moment where our students are taking that look, ask, listen, help. They did it. Like they did exactly what they were supposed to do. When you're worried, you get an adult involved and you let them handle it. Like you can't handle this on your own. And I was so proud. (laughs) You know, it was like 11 o'clock at night. I was so proud of these kids for doing exactly what we told them to do. And, um, you know, the kid is getting the help. So I was It was a moment where I felt really good about the time that we spend in class and that they came away with that and did it. As a parent yourself of a a high schooler, um, 
What would your advice be to, to parents who, who have teenagers who maybe they're not in a, in, a, in a school where this program is actually being implemented? Are there lessons from this program that you think families could implement themselves? Oh, 100%. I think, you know, um, the steps, look, ask, listen, help a friend are, anyone can do that. You know, any of us can be um, a shepherd for those of us around us, whether we know them well or not. But I think parents can sit their kids down and say, here you go. We are going to put the suicide hotline in your favorites on your phone. We're going to talk about who are adults that you trust and I think that is a lesson any of us could teach at home or at school or anywhere is, you know, if we see something, we need to try to help that person. That was Jen Schnormeyer at Gilbert High School in Iowa. We talked about the Teen Mental Health First Aid Program in Episode 8 of Season 3. That episode was called, How Can We Help More Kids Thrive in America? For this bonus episode today, we're highlighting the best practical advice we got from guests throughout the season about being a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate for the things we care about. And in episode three, we met Aaron Dunkerley. That episode was focused on ways to reduce gun violence in America. The majority of gun deaths in America are, in fact, suicides. That's how Aaron Dunkerley's father died and why she became an advocate. So I have learned that it's perfectly okay to, when someone in your life, when you when you sense that something's off, it's perfectly okay to ask them, are you doing okay? Are you thinking of harming yourself? That the idea of raising the question of, are you considering suicide, does not somehow plant the idea in someone's head. But it is truly a way to help reveal how they are doing. And then encouraging people, no matter what your walk of life is, to to have that vulnerability, to have candid discussions with each other. And then if it's your friend or a family member, once you learn, like, yeah, I actually have been thinking things haven't been going so great, but I always have this backup plan, I you know, in my dresser drawer. Once you get that information, to really work to pivot that person to some sort of a professional. Another thing I've learned is that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline isn't just for people who themselves are struggling with suicide. That if someone in your life is struggling with thoughts of suicide, you can call the suicide hotline and get help, get suggestions for how to pivot that person to some sort of a a care professional who can help attend to their, to the pain that they're experiencing. The number for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, by the way, is 988, if you'd like to program that into your phone or maybe your kid's phone. Much of the insight guests shared with us this season on Top of Mind centered on changing the way we see the problems that plague our society, finding a way as citizens and neighbors and advocates to take collective responsibility for one another's well-being. One of the most stunning examples of this came from Azim Kamisa in the very first episode of season three, which was about prison and punishment. Azim Kamisa's son, Tarek, was delivering pizzas when he was murdered by a 14-year-old boy named Tony as part of a gang initiation. Now, Azim Kamisa not only forgave his son's killer, he started a foundation with that boy's family to focus on reducing youth violence. 
in my heart, I felt compassion for the 14-year-old. Kids at that age shouldn't be playing with weapons and be involved with gangs and crimes and drugs and alcohol. It's easy to obviously feel compassion and empathy for your own child, but somehow I felt uh, we as a society had gone wrong, that the real culprit was not Tony, that the real culprit was societal forces, that Tony was a victim of society. Well, that begs the question, who is American society? Well, it's you and me. We have created this society. So I felt as an American, I'm a first-generation naturalized American, that I must take my share of the responsibility for the bullet that took my son's life. Why? Because it was fired by an American child. Well, you could take the position, he killed my one and only son, he should be hung from the highest pole. How does that make a better society? A few episodes later in the season, author Mark Fullman shared a similar perspective on addressing the problem of mass shootings in America. A part of this process is also more awareness and engagement from everyone that ultimately targeted mass violence, the problem of mass shootings in our country, school shootings, shootings in shopping malls, at concerts, any number of venues. This is fundamentally a community problem that everyone needs to be paying attention to, watching for warning signs or or responding to them, I should say. When people feel unease about the way someone's behaving, to speak up and seek help, and then trying to create more of this in communities where people know to turn for help. Uh, so it's really kind of changing the whole paradigm of thinking about community safety that, you know, the idea that everyone's in this together and looking out for each other. That's easier said than done, of course, to create that. But I think that that is the the sort of ideal version of how this model works. Mark Fullman wrote a book called Trigger Points about a strategy to stop mass shootings, which we featured in episode three. And one of the most hopeful articulations we heard this season of the power found in communities caring for one another came from Dana Bowen Matthew, the dean of the law school at George Washington University. Her book, called Just Health, describes how inequality shapes health and well-being in America. Dr. Matthew is African-American, and she argues that racism contributed to the premature deaths of her mother and father. The happy side of my mother's story is that living in community, caring about one another, taking account that we are one another's brothers and sisters keeper, really can improve your health. That is a scientific fact. So my mother, though she lived in a tough neighborhood and had very little in the way of financial resources of her own, was a person who just loved people. She had friendships that continue to benefit me today. She was a person who gathered her family around her regularly. And these are what social scientists call a protective resource. Friendships, community, having opportunities to get to know people outside of your racial group, outside of your social group, people who listen to a different news program, who go to a different church. My mother was a master at this. And I maintain that's one of the reasons she lived 15 years longer than my father did. What can I do to improve the health of 
my neighbor? What, what is within my, my reach as a member of a community? Everyone has a role to play in making it possible for everyone in our community to have an equal opportunity to be healthy. The mom who's on the PTA and sees that most of the kids that are getting assigned to the international baccalaureate courses or the advanced placement courses are white, or most of the kids that are getting referred to juvenile detention are Black, can step up and say, that's an area that I can influence. These may not be my kids, but I know where this leads and I'd like to see us change the policy. A person who is an employer in a small business and has the opportunity to take a little less profit for themselves and add a little bit more to the paychecks of those who are working, maybe even more than their competitor is adding, can say, that's a place where I can pay something much more like a living wage. A person who's in a church who recognizes that they are in the most segregated hour of the week in our country might even just say, let's have a discussion group that's not only the people in our church, but in the church next door so that I can learn. We serve the same God. Why are we so separate? Maybe I'll look at your news program and you can look at mine. Any one of us can make a difference by recognizing, and I'm actually very encouraged by this, by recognizing that any place we fight for equality, even in the way that we vote, any place that we fight for justice, any place that we seek to treat all human beings as equal, we're going to improve just health. That was Dana Bowen-Matthew, Dean of the Law School at George Washington University and author of Just Health, Treating Structural Racism to Heal America. She's one of the guests featured in the second episode of season three. That episode was called, What Does Justice in Healthcare Look Like? Becoming better advocates for the things we care about requires having those conversations Dr. Matthew calls for where we seek out people with perspectives that challenge us. And in episode nine, we got specific advice on how to stay in those conversations when the inevitable urge comes to get defensive or walk away. Here's Danielle Weatherby. She's a free speech expert and law professor at the University of Arkansas. The acronym is LEADER, L-E-A-D-E-R. The L stands for listening intentionally. This means shutting down that impulse to craft your internal rebuttal in your mind. We all do it. We're listening, but we're listening only so that we can prove the other side wrong. If you're doing that, you are hijacking the discussion, focused on your own thoughts rather than the speakers. The E in LEADER stands for empathize. And the idea is that we don't judge each other for having different points of view. We simply try to understand where each other's coming from. A is for acknowledge. Acknowledge both the common ground and what's potentially a roadblock. So roadblocks are word choice, a generalization, a factual inaccuracy. Identify those and put them aside. And that's where D comes in, defer. 
set aside any secondary sticking points that aren't ultimately necessary to the conversation. You know, maybe later on you can follow up with corrections, but it's more important that you come to some common ground. And then E is engage. Engaging with the big ideas, the structure of the person's argument. And R is respect each other's differences. If we all look the same, it'd be very boring, right? And so I tell my students, I tell my kids, I tell my loved ones to find beauty in that, to have respect for it. And I'm hoping with, like, with this tool that maybe we can engage in more civil conversations on matters of public concern. And there you have it, a Cliff's Notes version or Sparks Notes or TLDR or whatever the word is these days of advice, top of mind guests offered up in season three to help us become better citizens, kinder neighbors, and more effective advocates. Right now is a great time to binge all the Finding Fairness season episodes, by the way, because we are taking a short break for the summer. We'll be back in August with a brand new season. And here's a taste of what's in store. On season four of Top of Mind, we are assessing assumptions. Could the systems we've built to keep our communities safe and thriving work better if we weren't so set in our ways? I definitely think that we have a baked-in social assumption that the foods we eat are safe, that the drugs we take will help us. Could we make better choices about living and dying if we set certain assumptions aside? It's been shown really clearly that a third of what we do in healthcare doesn't make people healthier. You work really hard as a clinician to be very good at providing technical medical care. And so there is a sense in which pride in your work may drive you to continue pushing. When the person, if they were able to communicate clearly, would say, no, my natural death is upon me, let me go. Whether it's healthcare, economic opportunity, or public safety, we tend to assume the best way to do things is the way it's always been done. Police officers spend much of their time pulling drivers over, for example, because it's their job to keep our streets safe. But do routine traffic stops actually make us all safer? Assumptions built on shaky foundations are all around us. Like the universal belief that owning a home is the best way to build wealth in America that owning's always better than renting. Where did that narrative come from? And what are its consequences? Or take the almost fairy tale way we think about adoption as giving a kid in dire circumstances a happy ending with a new family. Adoption is really about loss. All of the players in the equation, adoptive parents, birth parents, and adoptees, we all were there because there was some kind of loss. No one can be replaced you know, through moving a a child to a new family, there is this thinking that that can all be washed away through this event, and it doesn't work that way. Do the comforting assumptions we have about child welfare in America actually serve children best? Well, you know what they say about assuming things. It makes a you-know-what out of you and me. But assessing assumptions is not about poking holes in everything to leave us feeling frustrated and confused. When we move beyond assumptions, we are better able to make decisions in the best interests of ourselves and others. So on top of mind, we're out to become better citizens, kinder neighbors, and more effective advocates by assuming less. 
Season four, Assessing Assumptions, starts in August. Can't wait to have you join us. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.